Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Anxiety shouldn't be your norm. Get the powerful safe audio system for anxiety over at quietbegins.com. Life presents the toughest challenges. Every day you are faced with decisions that test your ability to express who you really want to be in this world. We're told to keep saying affirmations and keep thinking positively, but what do you do when that stuff doesn't work? Welcome to the Overwhelmed Brain, where you'll learn to make decisions that are right for you so that you can create the life you want now. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Paul Coliani and I'm here to help you increase your emotional intelligence so that you can avoid dysfunction, handle toxic situations with grace and ease, and show up as your authentic self. Let's show up in 2021. This is the first episode of 2021. Great that you are here. This is what they call uh, evergreen content, <laughs> meaning it is good forever. Everything I talk about on the show is good forever. So if you ever hear me mention a date like 2021, if you're listening 10 years from now, that's okay. Because everything I'm talking about is the human experience. It's how we communicate. It's how we relate. It's how we get along with each other. It's how we get along with ourselves. It's how we see ourselves. It's how we find our way through a sometimes crazy world. So as you listen to this episode and hopefully future episodes, always remember that everything I talk about on this show is my personal opinion and is meant for informational and educational purposes only. Always consult a medical or psychological professional before making any changes that could affect your physical or mental health. Very, very glad to have you here. Very happy that you're listening to the show. And uh, I'm going to get right into our topic today. I don't know if it's our only topic. It might be, but... Um, We'll see where this goes. Uh, somebody wrote to me from Uruguay, way down in South America. I'm in the U.S., so that is way down to me. And she said, I can't tell you how much each one of your episodes has helped me after breaking up a toxic and abusive marriage a few years ago. It was amazing how much I could relate to your words and how they'd make me feel like I'm not alone or going crazy. And their father has been a lot of trouble, but I don't want to get into those details right now because I'm learning a lot from that experience. And my focus today is on improving my own communication skills, hoping to be what I'd like a future partner to be, a good and healthy communicator. Coming from a family where I could say everyone is reactive, I've learned to do the same. So now that I'm in my 40s, I have to undo myself in this area. On the other side, there's you on this great podcast making it sound so easy, <laughs> which I love, uh, because I feel like I can do it too, but I feel like I'd need my partner to be one step ahead of me, if not more. Like he should be some sort of mentor so that he can point me out the times when I'm being a poor communicator. Do I need to look for a coach or a psychologist as a partner? 
What's a quick way to practice? I feel like I need an app to be used instantly for every challenging situation that has all the possible healthy communication tools and the ones that disarm people who disempower. There is a business idea, she says. <laughs> Seriously, thanks for all you do for all of us out here. Best regards. Thank you so much for this message and for your words. I am humbly grateful. I'm so glad that you have found value and that you are working on yourself and trying to improve your life where you can. I love the app idea. <laughs> I think uh, someday I might come up with it because, I don't know, if it, have you ever read Mad Magazine where they had these comic strips that say uh, snappy answers to stupid questions? Sometimes I feel like that. And I'm saying that not because I have snappy answers and that the questions are stupid, not yours especially. I'm saying that sometimes people come along that are hard to communicate with and it would be nice to snap out an answer. It would be nice to snap out a reply. It would be nice to have the appropriate thing to say to them so that they aren't bothering us anymore or they're not toxic or they just understand where we're coming from because we're able to communicate our message clearly. I think that's a vital tool to have in your tool belt. So it is neat that you say, hey, we should have an app on it. I'm not making any promises here, but maybe, maybe someday in the future. That sounds like quite a complicated thing. Like uh, this person said this, what do I say now? Uh, I'll think about it. So thank you for that. And I don't know if you were serious about that or not, but you might be. So maybe I'll run with it someday. Otherwise, let me get to your message. It's great that you got out of a toxic and abusive marriage. And I'm so glad the show helped there. And I'm sure you've done a lot of work since then. You said you're coming from a reactive family and you're in your 40s. So you want to undo yourself in this area. I totally get that. Um, in fact, I had emotional triggers up until my 40s that ran my life. Emotional triggers can run your life. They can dictate what you're going to do, what you're going to say, and they are intrinsic. They are built in, or they were programmed in at one time, whether by you or someone else. But when you're a reactive person, these are the emotional triggers that you're carrying around with you just waiting to be set off. And when you walk around with triggers, you don't really have too much conscious control or prediction that they're going to happen. Like you can't predict that you're going to react in certain ways by certain people because your fight or flight kicks in and your emotional trigger gets activated and that trigger is attached to a lot of emotions and that trigger also has certain behaviors that you do when you're triggered. For example, an emotional trigger that I carried around was when people uh, I love did something that I didn't love, I would have an angry, angry response, a, a protective response even. I carried around emotional triggers that caused me to protect myself. In fact, I would say that most emotional triggers are protections, they're coping mechanisms, and when you are triggered, you feel like you need to protect yourself, and there are multiple ways to protect yourself. I could think of a few. You could withdraw. You could get angry and lash out. You could have a snappy answer. <laughs> you could uh, say something back or do something back or 
just lose your cool altogether and uh, throw something out your dining room window. These are some of the patterns that have been ingrained in us over the years because that's how we learned to respond, typically to protect ourselves. That's good to know. It's good to know that our emotional triggers are protective mechanisms. Because what happens is in childhood, I mean, where most emotional triggers are formed, you will experience something that you feel endangered by. You feel like it's a threat. And because you want to survive or get through it without suffering or pain, you will probably create a protective mechanism, a coping mechanism or a survival mechanism, however you want to look at this, uh, which turns into an emotional trigger that during childhood works for you quite well, at least from your assessment, because when you behave that way, your coping mechanism kicks in, you survive, and you feel good that you survived, so you chalk that up to an effective coping mechanism. And that coping mechanism turns into that emotional trigger that then you carry with you for years because it has worked. But then when you grow up and you're a teenager and you start getting leaving the house more, if this is you, it was me, that's for sure, when I started leaving the house more and I started developing other relationships outside the house, uh, growing up, I was growing up, turning into a young adult, these emotional triggers didn't go away. They didn't disappear. My mom or my dad or my stepfather or my sisters or brothers, they didn't say, hey, you got these emotional triggers you have to work on before you leave home, especially before you develop other relationships because you've used these emotional triggers in the family uh, most of your life, so we need to work on that before you leave. Wouldn't that be the ultimate parenting? <laughs> I didn't know this when I was a kid. I didn't know this when I was an adult until my 40s. Like this person who wrote, she's in her 40s. She wants to undo some of this stuff, her reactiveness. Reactiveness, I would say, is a combination of emotional triggers. You're reacting because you want to protect. You feel like there's an injustice or you feel like there's a danger or you feel like there's something that you need to address right away and it affects you directly. You can also be reactive to protect other people. So I do look at emotional triggers, again, most of the time as protective mechanisms and, of course, a.k.a. coping mechanisms, survival mechanisms. But where I was going with childhood triggers, as you grow up and you leave home and you develop other, other relationships, you still have these childhood mechanisms kicking in. These are the programs that are in the background that are just waiting to be activated. And when they're activated and you come up with this behavior, you might surprise a few people, especially the people that you've grown to love and have an attachment or connection to. And when you surprise them with your emotional triggers, what do you get in response? You probably get their emotional triggers. You probably get their protective mechanisms because they want to survive too. They want to get through that moment too. It does fascinate me that we can be in childhood and develop these background programs, if you want to call them that, and bring them into our adult life with somebody else who also has background programs. And then 
if we're in a romantic relationship, for example, these programs don't activate until two to four months. You know, that honeymoon period. Two to four months go by, and then slowly but surely, our emotional triggers are kicking in. Sometimes people don't wait that long. Sometimes it happens right away, and you get to see a fully authentic person from day one. That would be wonderful. If everyone showed their emotional triggers on day one, then we can decide if we want to continue this relationship or not. But we usually see it after we fall in love, we get a house, we get married, we have kids. Depending on the choices you make to be in a relationship, to have a relationship, to have children, to adopt children, whatever you want, these are all personal choices. But our emotional triggers affect these choices and their emotional triggers, the other people that are in our life. They, they affect our choices as well. And since we find these emotional triggers usually after we get to know someone and after a honeymoon period of some sort, then we have a harder choice because now we might see something that we don't like and we realize, whoa, I, I don't want to live with this person if they do this thing or react this way. I don't want to get into an argument with a person that uh, throws pots and pans at me. I don't want to have a conversation with someone who yells in my face when I'm just trying to be calm. These are the types of reactions that can happen and we find out after we've developed commitments and attachments and things like that. And then we have tougher choices because once we're committed, we feel like, okay, we need to make this relationship work out. We need to work on this stuff. And it's great when you have a partner or someone else in your life that can say, you know what, I agree. We need to work on this stuff. We need to figure this stuff out. I have a bad temper. We need to work on that. Or you have a tendency to scream at me at the top of your lungs, not even caring who's around. And it's embarrassing because if our friends are around or our kids are around, you do things that are just hard to handle. So we should probably work on this. And I love saying we. I think we is a good term to use when you're with somebody else. We should do this. We should work on this. I mean, I heard my friend Matthew say, we're pregnant, meaning his wife. He said, we're pregnant. And that's great because he is committing to the relationship. He is committing to the birth and the raising of the child. He is fully in. And so when you have a relationship issue, we should work on this. I think it's a good approach. I think it shows that you are taking responsibility for your role in whatever happens in the relationship. The trouble that I see, because people write to me and they tell me these things, is something like, my partner said that I am the problem and I need to work on it. I've said this before, it's not a relationship if it's all about one person doing the work. It's not. You're not relating. You're not an equal partnership. You are in a roommate situation or a friends with benefits situation or just something that I haven't heard defined yet. Because when you are with someone and you want to build a life together, typically romantic relationships, that's what happens. We want to build a life together. We want to grow together. We want to heal together. We want to evolve together. We want to do everything we can so that our lives are better because this other person is in our lives. 
So when we have a relationship where we both contribute to it equally and take responsibility for it equally, I believe it works out better. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I know it works out better. I know that when you work on it together and both take responsibility for what's going on in the relationship so that you can work on resolving what challenges you run into, it works out better. It's so much easier than being assigned to do it yourself. It's not even the right way to say it. It's not that it's easier that you're together. It's just, I think it should be expected. I think it needs to be expected that you work on things together. Now, this doesn't include really personal challenges that one has to deal with themselves. So let me give you the one caveat here. There are people that maybe they have to work through an addiction. Maybe they have to work through some sort of dysfunction that really doesn't involve the other person and this dysfunction exists whether they're in the relationship or not. If you are like that or your partner or anyone else in your life is like that, then they may have to do the Lone Ranger thing, as my girlfriend calls it. Sometimes you have to go through things yourself and get through the challenges yourself because your partner isn't there to help you. Your partner can't be your addiction counselor, even if they're an addiction counselor. It's very difficult for your partner to be an addiction counselor. I'm not saying it's impossible. I I suppose there are people out there that can do this, but when you're in the same uh, fish tank as the other fish that's sick, you are likely to be sick too. Maybe not in the same way, but you get embroiled and meshed in the toxicity of the tank, if I may use that metaphor, and because you're swimming around in the same water, it's very difficult to see from outside the tank so that you can be helpful. The person that's outside the tank can get a net, pull you out, and put you in the clean water. That would be a lovely way for things to go. It doesn't always go that easily, but you get what I mean. When you're in the challenge, it's hard to be objective about the challenge because you are a part of it. You are part of the formula of the challenge. And so this person who wrote said, you know, am I supposed to marry a psychologist or a therapist or a coach? I don't think it's always a good idea to rely on a partner, a person who's in the relationship with you, to be the one you go to to share everything with. That doesn't mean they can't help. That doesn't mean they can't mentor. That doesn't mean they can't teach. That doesn't mean a lot of things. It just means they can't be your source. They can't be your only go-to if you are dealing with a dysfunction or a challenge or something even harder to deal with like an addiction. If the person is in the relationship, it's also involved in helping you heal as your primary therapist or coach or best friend or whatever it is, it's a lot more difficult because you will not be able to say all the things that you hate about them to them. (laughs) I mean, that's just an extreme. That's an exaggeration, but that can happen. My girlfriend, she needs an outlet besides me. I believe I can help her through a lot of things but I don't offer. I mean, I rarely offer. Sometimes I do. If she's really in the mess, I'll ask her, do you want me to ask you some questions? 
But if she's in the mess, if she's crying, if she's upset, if there's something going on, whether it has to do with me or not, if it has to do with me, then I definitely stay out of it. If, if the problem has to do with the other person, there's a communication issue or whatever, then it's really good to stay out of it as a coach or a therapist, but be in it as the person involved. You know, I'm not saying you have to stay out of it, but be in it because you're involved in it. But showing up as the mentor, the guide, the coach to the person that you're in a relationship with, I, I think that's not always a good idea. When my girlfriend is in that space, I will ask that benign question, do you want me to ask you some questions? And she might say, sure, yeah, let's let's go through this. Now, she has allowed it. She has permitted it. She is allowing me to walk her through the process. And she does that because she trusts me. She does that because she knows that even if she said, I don't think I'm in love with you anymore, I could probably handle it even though it would hurt. She knows if she said, look, I'm really angry at you for what you did, at least I would still be objective. I wouldn't jump into my old emotional triggers and say, what? What did I do? What's wrong? I wouldn't do that because I've been practicing this for a long time. Yes, I feel affected, but my focus is on her getting better, even if it involves me. So there are people capable of doing this. I believe I'm capable most of the time doing this. It doesn't mean I don't have moments, but um, I also don't necessarily volunteer to coach her through anything. So I'm addressing one of these questions from this person's email that, uh, no, it's not usually a good idea to get with a coach or a therapist in order for you to seek guidance from them whenever you need them. I don't think that's a good idea. I think that most people are great coaches or therapists anyway. I think everyone has the ability to help other people through challenges. Not all of them, but we've all gone through our own thing. If I had never been certified as a coach, if I had never studied anything that I studied, I have still gone through life experiences that I can share with others that they haven't necessarily figured out yet. Just like you have gone through a lot of life experiences that you probably figured out and it is a challenge to somebody else. So you become a guide or a mentor to them if they want help. If they aren't asking for help, I've said this before, you don't necessarily want to offer the help every time you think somebody needs it. I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, you can be there for them and you can say, hey, if you ever need me, let me know. But to say, hey, I know how to work on that. I can help you. You're traveling in a territory that may or may not work out. And the only reason I say that because I've done this in the past, is that when you offer to help someone and they're not ready to be helped and you insist that you know how to help them, you may get a very resistant person, a very reluctant person. You may not actually be able to help them because they're not in the space to receive it. And they may think they want the help and sometimes they don't. Sometimes people don't want to be helped and also, sometimes people don't trust you, even though you may be a very trusting person, to help them. Sometimes you have a different role in their life, and they rely on you for that role. But if you suddenly show up as, hey, I can help you, they may not want it. This is why it's much better to just say, I'm here if you need me, than to say, I know how to fix that. Let's fix it. Unless you're in that role. I'm just talking about uh, different roles here. 
if you're in a professional role or a friendship role and that's how you've been showing up for them and they want you to say that, totally different. But if you're in a relationship and you say, well, you know, I have a PhD and I can help you, so let's talk about this, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them and they may not be able to receive that information. So I hope I addressed that part of your message and I do think that it might have been a little tongue-in-cheek. But I get that. I totally get it because it's nice to have that person there to ask questions. But this is uh, the beauty of any relationship is that that person acts as a mirror and we can reflect upon how they respond to us and how we respond to them. And our emotional triggers come up to be addressed, to be identified, so that we can look at what's going on in our life and how we respond and react to what's going on in our life and make a choice if we want to do that again. I know it doesn't always feel like we have a choice, but when they come up, when these emotional triggers are presented to us, we do have a choice on how to respond again. And I know this is true because I used to have emotional triggers that caused me to be harmful. They caused me to be hurtful to the people I loved. So my emotional triggers used to dictate how I lived my life and used to make or break my relationships. Usually broke them. <laughs> but when I had an emotional trigger, it was always unpleasant for them. And it was like a huge weight on my shoulders for me. It is weird to think that people that hurt you are carrying around a huge emotional burden, but most of them are. Most people that hurt other people are carrying around some big emotional burden and they don't have the coping skills to deal with it. They don't have a therapist to talk to about it or a best friend to talk to about it or they just don't want to be vulnerable enough to share it with others. So they lash out at others or become reactive toward others like this person who wrote. I'm not saying that's where you are, but a reactive person is usually one who has a few emotional triggers in them and those emotional triggers haven't been resolved. So when we come back, I'm going to share with you a little bit more about how you can react differently. Uh, and it involves some reprogramming at a deeper level, but it's easy. I'm not here to say that you need to meditate 20 minutes a day. That would be great. I don't even have time to meditate 20 minutes a day. But if you have that time, wonderful, because it's a wonderful tool. But there are ways to reprogram yourself, and it does have to do with uh, future pacing. In hypnosis, future pacing is basically telling the client what's going to happen the next time the stimulus for that trigger comes up. And so what the hypnotist does is find out what causes the client to do some unresourceful or unwanted behavior. And then the hypnotist will throw in some previously agreed upon suggestions to the client so that they don't have an emotional trigger next time. Hypnosis is actually a very useful tool when it comes to emotional triggers if you find the right hypnotist, if you find the right person for the job. Because everyone's different and you just have to have a good vibe with the person that you connect with. If you ever want to go seek a hypnotist, I would just recommend that you get along well and you get a good feel for them. But they can be a good source to help you through emotional triggers because if you find yourself as a reactive person as this person and you've worked on your emotional triggers by listening to episodes of this show or finding other content or working with a therapist or a coach and you're still reactive, 
then it might be time to have somebody else do the work, all the subconscious work that might need to be done. And hypnotism can do that. So it's not just about quacking like a duck and barking like a dog. That is another form of hypnotism, and uh, that doesn't happen in a professional's office. So I want to give you that practical tip, just in case everything we talk about in the show doesn't give you the result that you want. Again, when we come back, I'll go over something that I do when old emotional triggers come up and what you can do as well to hopefully diminish or even dissolve them. Wouldn't that be nice? Unwanted emotional triggers that aren't needed get dissolved. There are ways to do this. You will get through this. And I will be right back and we will continue talking about it after this. I'll share with you a service that specializes in emotional triggers, and that's BetterHelp. I talked about them last year, and I am, I am happy to continue endorsing this wonderful service. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com. And if you go to BetterHelp.com forward slash brain, you'll get 10% off your first month. So it's definitely worth checking them out and seeing if they are the right solution for you. And if you've never heard of them, BetterHelp is a professional counseling service that you can use online through their messaging system on the phone or on video chat. When you sign up, they assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You get to connect in a safe and private online environment. It's convenient, and as soon as you sign up, you can start communicating in under 24 hours. This is not self-help where you just get a bunch of assignments and then you go off and do it on your own. No, they actually walk you through it as if you were in their office and this might be what you need you know you listen to shows like this you absorb other content out there and if you're still walking around in a state of mind that you aren't happy with or you just can't figure out why you aren't happy BetterHelp might be the solution for you so I'd highly recommend you go to betterhelp.com that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com forward slash brain get 10% off your first month and figure out what's interfering with your happiness. Is there something preventing you from reaching your goals? Are you stressed out? Are you depressed? Are, are you having anxiety? I know 2020 gave a lot of people anxiety and still stressed and there's a lot going on. They're still trying to work it out. If that's where you are, everything you share is confidential. It's very convenient. It is absolutely professional and affordable. Check out their testimonials. Head over to their site betterhelp.com forward slash brain that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com forward slash brain as a TOB listener you'll get tempers off your first month check them out today welcome back like this person who wrote the email said what is a quick way to practice not being reactive <laughs> what is something you can do to develop healthier communication tools and uh, she wrote tools to disarm people who disempower okay you definitely have two different things going on here there are healthy communication tools or I should say helpful and resourceful communication tools which lead to healthier communication 
at least for you, uh, it opens the door for healthier communication for them, but not everyone walks through the door. And then you have a tool to disarm people who disempower you. That's probably another show. <laughs> That's something I don't necessarily get into quite often, how to disarm people. Uh, you know, I realize it's just a play on words here, and I think I know what you mean. But what I like to encourage is that it's not about disarming them by doing something to them or telling them something. Disarming them is about you showing up with power. To disarm people who disempower, you show up with power. When you feel empowered to honor your boundaries and say what's on your mind or do what you need to do and what's right for you, that disarms them. So that is a great way to look at that. Instead of saying, I want to do something to you or say something that disarms you or puts you in your place, I like to look at it as showing up as the best version of you, the healthiest version of you, the version of you that you love in yourself, that you want to protect in yourself in a good way, not in a, an emotional trigger sort of way, but in a, an empowered way where you are confident where you love and respect yourself so much that you'll never let anyone put you down or make you feel unworthy or unimportant because you know you're important. That is the best way to disarm anyone is knowing your own worth and importance. It is having a healthy ego and being proud of who you are. There are levels of ego where it's not healthy. But I look at ego as a tool that you can bring into your own awareness and say, you know what, I'm damn proud of who I am, and I'm not going to let that person knock me down. And when they say something that tries to knock me down, I'm going to see through that. I'm going to make sure that I am aware of what they're trying to do and not let that happen. That doesn't mean I have to lash back or be that reactive person, I can just observe what's happening. They're trying to disempower me and access my own power and say, you know what, I don't deserve that behavior. I could ask them or suggest to them to not ever do that again. I could say, look, that is disrespectful and I am asking you not to do that again. That I am fully supportive of. I appreciate that. When somebody says what you just did was disrespectful and hurtful, I don't want you to do it again, or I ask you, please don't do that again. I think that's a very healthy way to communicate, to disarm somebody who tries to disempower you, if you want to look at it that way. Because you're showing up in a way that isn't controllable. When you show up in a way that somebody can't control you or get the reaction or response that they want, that totally disarms them. I mean, if you're dealing with a controlling or manipulative person and you show up that way, they're not going to know what to do next because they may be used to being able to control you. They may be used to you submitting to their control or their manipulation. So when you have somebody in your life that treat you a certain way and you've always responded in a certain way that seems to allow that treatment involuntarily, meaning you might submit, you might not say anything back, you might not honor yourself because you don't want to cause trouble or you don't want to 
get into a dangerous situation, maybe it's a perceived danger, maybe it's a real danger, then you might continue to facilitate that bad behavior because they haven't seen another side of you. But imagine if you showed up as someone who appreciates yourself and who loves and respects yourself and wants to protect yourself to the point where if somebody tries to knock you over, emotionally speaking, and you don't allow it or you choose to get away from it because they can't be reasoned with or talked to, then you might have to do that. It's going to throw them for a loop, especially people that really think they know you. This is the best part about finding your own power and stepping into it. When people think they know you and you decide to honor your boundaries one time, you know, the first time ever in front of them, they're going to be so surprised and they're not going to know who you are and they may even dislike you for it. They may even get ticked off that you're doing this. How dare you honor yourself when I'm trying to control you? How dare you stand up for yourself when I want you to bow down to me? This is how I see people sometimes. This is how I see controlling, manipulative, or even involuntarily hurtful people. There are people out there that don't even know what they're doing because their emotional triggers are running the show. But I I see this and I immediately rephrase or interpret what's going on and almost sometimes speak it in my mind. Meaning, somebody comes up to me and says something that is hurtful. Um, Like, your show sucks. (laughs) I hate it. I don't want to listen to your show. You take too long to get to the point. Or whatever. I've heard all of the above. And uh, what goes through my mind is, okay, if I were to reword that, how would I word that? I would word it in a way that was empowering to me and more easy to digest. Like, I would say something like, okay, your show sucks and uh, you take too long to get to the point. I interpret that as, I have a problem in my life that you have not addressed in a way that is helpful to me. And when I tune into a show that you talk about this problem, I do not have enough time or patience for you to get to a point that helps me with that problem. So what I've done is I've minimized the impact on me and I've interpreted their words in a way that they feel but are not able to convey it in a more pleasant way. That may not be how they feel. They may say, no, I mean exactly what I mean, and that's fine. But it's about me. I want to turn that around and not take it so personally and not become defensive or even hurt that they are saying something bad about something that I pour my heart into every time I create a new episode or a new blog article or anything that I create, really is that somebody comes along and says, I don't like what you do, and you're not qualified, and what makes you the authority? Again, I've heard almost everything, and it's important to have tools at your disposal so that you can turn these things around as soon as possible. That was kind of a side note I wanted to make, is that when people criticize you, it's nice to put yourself in their shoes and really understand what's going on behind the scenes. If somebody comes up to you and says, You're a jerk. You got the raise and I didn't. I can't believe they put you in that position and not me. I've been here longer. And you feel really bad and now you don't know what to say or what to do. 
if you turn that around and you put yourself in their shoes and you think about what they really mean, it might come out like, I've been working hard to get a higher position and I feel really scared that somebody came along after me and they gave them the raise and not me. What does that say about me and how much I'm worth? That really turns things around too. This is a little thing that you can do to reword what people say to you so that you can understand their perspective. Not that I want you to do this every time, not that you even have to. I'm just giving you that little extra tool, uh, something that I do every now and then when I need it. When words are spoken or actions are taken, I put myself in their shoes and ask myself, why would I feel this way or think this way or do what I'm doing? And then I find a rational, reasonable, logical explanation for what is going on being that person, and I reword it in a way that um, reveals a vulnerability or an insecurity in me. This is one of the things that when you're going through life and people are coming at you and your emotional triggers are going off, it's nice to have this interpretation of their words and behaviors so that you don't take everything personally. And what you end up doing is you're able to develop healthier communication skills, which this person is asking about, so that you can reply in a way that isn't coming from an emotional trigger, but more of an empathetic state of mind. And I'm not saying everyone deserves your empathy or your sympathy because some people are just hurtful. Some people just want you to hurt or submit or comply. And when we run into those people, that's when we have to look inward and ask ourselves, how much am I going to respect myself in this moment to the point where I need to protect myself from this behavior and stand up to what's not right? I need to stand up for what's right and stand up to what's not right. That doesn't mean you face someone down and you put them in their place. Not always. You might. But it could mean that you walk away. It could mean that you realize there's no way to communicate with certain people So you walk away and you come to an acceptance that that's who they are and they'll never change. That's a wonderful resource that I use is coming to an acceptance that the person is who they are and they will never, ever change. That is freeing. At the same time, it's hard to accept that they'll never change because we hope they'll change. But when they don't, where are we? Do we stay in hope? Do we pray? Do we wish? Or do we move forward knowing they'll never change? That's where I go. I like to move forward knowing they'll never change. But if they do, it's a wonderfully pleasant surprise to me. So it doesn't mean it'll never happen. It just means I've accepted that they won't. And if they do, I'll be happy to accept that wonderful gift, that surprise of them changing. But until then... If you choose to accept that someone will never ever change, it allows you to stay out of expectation mode or wishful thinking. It helps you stop being reactive. This is one little tip to stop being reactive. If you can stay out of expectation mode and not expect anything other than what you've already seen from a person, then you are empowered. You are no longer in an emotionally triggered state because you've chosen to accept that that's who they are. 
Doesn't mean they'll always be this way, but accepting that that's who they are because that's what you've experienced all these months or years, it frees you from the expectations that they will be anything different than they have been. It also frees you from expecting them to get it and understand that they are bullying or intimidating or hurtful. It helps to get out of that frame of mind because sometimes we give people the benefit of the doubt, but then we're disappointed over and over again. And not only disappointed, but hurt. I mean, emotionally wounded because they still don't get that they're hurting me. They still don't get how bad their behavior is. And so we keep looking for them to find the light and see that they're hurting us, but they never do. So we feel extra pain or suffering because they never saw it in themselves and they still treat us badly. So that is another way to stop being so reactive is to not see people for anything more than what you've already seen. Now this doesn't mean something you've seen in the past. If you've seen someone a long time ago, they used to be nice and they used to treat me nice and I know it's in there, you need to let that go because how they show up today is how they show up. I think I just talked about this on my other podcast, Love and Abuse, the WYSIWYG view, where what you see is what you get. It's a computer term. What you see people do today is what you get today. And if you look for anything beyond that, then that's your imagination or wishful thinking or relying on hope that they will return to who they once were or how they once behave instead of seeing them for who they are. Like my girlfriend said once, it's a really great phrase, you are not your potential. And I didn't really like that phrase in the beginning because I thought, I always knew that I was more than my potential. But really, the way I'm showing up today is my full potential right now. Does that mean I can't be anything beyond my potential in this moment? Absolutely not. It means that I can do more and do better, and suddenly I am beyond my previous potential. But right now is my potential. And if I fail tonight, that is my potential in that moment. And then if I succeed the next day, that is my potential. And so she really helped me understand that even though we're all capable of doing more and being more and improving ourselves, that we aren't there until we're there. And that means we continuously have to work on it. And we can't look to the future and say, that's me now. Although some New Age teachings teach you that. And if that works for you, great. I don't want to take that away from you. But for the rest of us, (laughs) it doesn't work for me. I look at the future and say, that's where I want to be. I'm not there now, because if I was there now, I wouldn't be motivated to get there. So that's where I want to be right now, but I'm not there now, so I'll work on that now, and I will get there. And that constantly uh, feeds me. It, It continues to pull me along and motivate me to continue to improve myself, because that's where I want to be, over there. That's who I want to be. That's where I want to be. So that can be helpful as well. Now, as far as these emotional triggers I was talking about, emotional triggers, uh, like I said, are a protective mechanism, and we really have to understand what we were doing at the time when we developed them and why we did it. For example, I became highly resistant to anyone that drank alcohol around me at a young age. I was in an alcoholic family. My stepfather drank alcohol every day, I think, and uh, he drank to the point where he was an obnoxious drunk. 
to an aggressive drunk, to a violent drunk, to someone that you might put in jail. I mean, I've seen a lot of sides, and my mom has seen more sides of him, and other family members have seen much worse sides of him. So I consider myself lucky where I was in the family and what I was exposed to as opposed to some other members of my family. But at a young age, I decided that drinking was bad. Drinking alcohol was a bad thing, and uh, anyone that did it must not love me. Anyone that drank alcohol didn't love me enough to stop drinking alcohol. I took it personally. You know, I can see this now, but as a child, I mean, that's probably how I was interpreting it too. I mean, if they're drinking and they become awful, then they must not love me. So looking at this as an adult, in hindsight, uh, thinking about what I was thinking as a child, this is helpful to you. Think about what triggers you and how it developed and what you were thinking. Put yourself in your shoes as a child and ask yourself what you were thinking then regarding this emotional trigger. Because when I do it, when I was reacting to people drinking around me, that's where I go. If they drink, it's against me. Not only do they not love me, they are also dangerous to me. And if they drink, they turn into someone different that I can't stand to be around. And as I grew up and as I grew older and I developed my first relationship in my late teens, my girlfriend one day told me that she drank alcohol and she was having a good time one night after she was working at a restaurant or something. I mean, it wasn't a lot of alcohol. It was an alcoholic drink. It was something normal that most people could do and tell their partner and not expect the reaction that I had. My reaction was, you drank? Like it was blasphemy. Like it was some huge offense that she had no idea she was committing. And of course, she wasn't committing an offense except she wasn't 21, so <laughs> there was a violation of the law there. But, you know, we were teenagers, and she had a drink, and I couldn't handle it. It was awful. I became judgmental. That's a good word, actually, judgmental. I became mental. I became judgmental. It affected me mentally. It affected me psychologically and emotionally. Uh, it was a trigger. So I had this emotional trigger as soon as she told me she had a drink. And I said, I, I don't want you to drink. You shouldn't drink. Because I had this childhood memory of people that drink are dangerous and they don't love me. And I became protective. I don't want people that I love to drink because then they won't love me and they'll hurt me. So this is what I did. I started analyzing my childhood emotional triggers, which most of them are. This is where they come from, childhood. And started understanding why I reacted the way I did because that emotional trigger was definitely on the surface if somebody did that around me it was coming out it was a fight-or-flight response it was I need to protect me right now and when it came out uh, it hurt the people I love this is one of many <laughs> that I've had to deal with but my process was figuring out as a child why I developed that and realizing that I never let it go and asking myself, 
is this still a valid belief to have? I think that's a great question to ask yourself. Is this a valid belief to have? Is this a uh, logical belief to have? Does it make sense? Does it make sense that I get upset that someone drinks around me? I think the only answer I could come up with at the time was, it only makes sense if they become dangerous. But I wasn't even letting them get to that point. I wasn't letting them get a little bit tipsy. I wasn't allowing myself to see what happens after a second drink or a third drink. I wasn't even allowing them to go any distance with it. I just created a belief in my mind that drinking alcohol was bad, so people shouldn't do it, and the people that do do it are dangerous in some way to me. And so I figured out what that emotional trigger was all about, and when I started asking myself some very reasonable questions, like, is it logical to have this belief, my answer was no. How could it be logical? It doesn't make any sense. But I still had the emotions attached to it. I still had the fears attached to it. But the logic, which is the first step of this, kicked in, and I said, no, it's not logical to have this belief. Therefore, what's the point of having this trigger? And the next question is, what am I trying to protect? That was a big one, too. Like, what am I really trying to protect here? Am I this scared little child in a relationship that if my girlfriend gets drunk, I think she's going to attack me? That's something else that I had to figure out and make sense of. And so I went through that. I was drilling into or drilling down into the emotional trigger to try to figure out what in the world is it doing here? Why do I even need to have this in my life? It makes no sense. So I worked through it that way, asking myself those questions. What's the point of this trigger now? Because I get it. When you're a child, these triggers make sense. But why now? Why do I react this way? I don't want to react this way. And I had to ask myself that question too. Do I want to react this way? That's a great question to ask yourself. Do I really want to react this way? My answer was no, because I hurt people. I saw their face. It was like I drained them of happiness when I said, you know, you shouldn't drink. I remember this girl I used to date. I just drained her of her excitement of telling me about her fun night after work. And I drained that from her. I took that away from her. I took her happiness away. I don't want that on my conscience. I don't want to make people feel that way. That was a huge step forward for me with um, alcohol. Because I used to be so against it. I wouldn't touch it. I hated when other people touched it. And so uh, after a few months, I guess, of working on that in myself, I decided to try alcohol. Not because I wanted to get drunk, but because I think it was important for me to face something in a personal way to show me that it wasn't everything I thought it was. And it doesn't have to be the tool of destruction that I have known it to be. And so I I learned that I liked pina coladas. (laughs) I learned that I like margaritas. And so that has become a once in a while thing for me. I don't really actually enjoy drinking at all, uh, but I do love the flavors of some drinks. So every now and then I'll have one. So that process helped me get not only get over it, but also add something to my life that I enjoy once in a while. And I don't have the burden of the emotional trigger anymore. 
And that was just one trigger. I had many other triggers that I had to deal with as well. But I'm telling you about this one to give you some ideas of what you can do if you find yourself to be a reactive person, or at least reactive in some ways with certain people or events in your, that happen in your life. And one of the things that you can do, which I'm talking about in this episode, is to revisit your childhood and figure out why it started and if it needs to be there anymore. Now, let's just say that you said, oh, yes, it still needs to be there. Let's just say that that was your answer. Yes, that emotional trigger still needs to be there. I do need to protect myself. I do feel like that emotional trigger needs to be there. My question to you is, okay, does that serve you? I mean, it probably does because you said it needs to be there, but how does it serve you? Does it serve you and how does it serve you? It serves me because it protects me from certain people that I don't want to be around. That could be it. Maybe there's an inner warrior inside you that when the emotional trigger comes up, it protects you. Those emotional triggers, as long as you don't consider them a burden, they may be part of your power. They may be part of the fire inside of you that keeps you protected, that shows you that you matter, that you are important. I don't have a problem with those emotional triggers. Yeah, there are probably other ways to handle certain things, but if it's serving you and it's not giving you that bad feeling and you're carrying it around and you're you're not always thinking about it, it just happens when it needs to happen and it protects you, then maybe that trigger is a helpful, resourceful trigger to have and I would recommend maybe you shouldn't get rid of it unless you're getting terrible results from it. If you're getting terrible results because you're overreacting or you're going way off on certain people and they're thinking, whoa, I I can't be around you, you're just way overreactive, then maybe it's something you need to look at. Maybe you need to go back in time and put yourself in your shoes when this trigger started and figure out if it needs to be so amplified. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you need to look at that. So that's something to just consider as you go along. But with a reactive nature, we have to remember that fight or flight kicks in and tells the appropriate emotional triggers to activate and protect you. Uh, This is something that I would recommend that you repeat in your mind. And let me give you the final tip for the reactive person, the reactive nature of some people's personalities. Maybe yours, I know mine sometimes, is that after you have the reaction, you reflect on that reaction and you figure out why you did that and of course you go back into the past put yourself in your shoes and figure out why you started it and if it's still necessary asking yourself the questions and then you do what I mentioned earlier something called future pacing which is imagining yourself going through the trigger in the future now what this does is it starts to rewire your brain a little bit this future pacing. So let's just say that, I'll give the alcohol example again. Let's just say that I still wasn't over it, but I knew my girlfriend was going to have alcohol when we go out to the restaurant on Tuesday night. And I already know how I'm going to respond. It's going to affect me. I'm going to feel like I need to protect myself. The emotional triggers are going to come up. I'm going to get angry. I might be silent. I might give her a dirty look. You know, I'm trying to access my old self and how I used to respond. And so if I didn't get rid of that emotional trigger, then all of this is going through my mind because I'm imagining it happening. I'm imagining it playing out on Tuesday night and I see her order the drink and 
I can see my own face like I'm looking at myself from another part of the table and I can hear what my thoughts are because I'm also in my own mind and I'm going through the process of how the emotional trigger forms, when it forms, and what I do. And during this moment when I'm going through this, knowing that I might be reactive, I am going to do some maybe some self-hypnosis. You can do this too. <laughs> you don't have to be certified. You can do this too by seeing yourself in a situation that you know triggers you and then installing one or two things that changes the pattern a little bit. And what I mean by that is our emotional triggers usually follow the same pattern. Okay, there's the stimulus, there's my fight or flight, there's the trigger, there's my reaction. I have a whole pattern laid out, steps A through Z. I know this stuff happens. This is why it's helpful to future pace a little bit and see yourself in the situation so that you can see these steps start to play out. When you're seeing these steps play out and you're taking it one step at a time, okay, now I'm doing this. Now I'm in my mind and I'm having these thoughts and now I'm angry. I want you to implant or install something that you might say to yourself or something else you might envision in that moment as if it were going to happen when it happened. In other words, for me, I might say, okay, on Tuesday night, right before I get angry, I'm going to remind myself that I'm an adult. Just something simple like that. I'm going to remind myself that I'm not a child. I'm an adult. This may not happen the first time. I mean, what I'm doing is I'm introducing a new step in the pattern. Steps A, B, C. Now we have something in between C and D. C.1 or something like that. C and a half. C and a half is me saying, wait, I'm an adult. I'm not a child. I am an adult. And then DEF. They can all still happen. They may all still happen. I may not be able to control that right away. But what I'm doing is I'm introducing just a little change in my response. Because when fight or flight kicks in, we are usually on autopilot. Because we never think about it this way. We never lay it out ahead of time to plan how we're going to respond. We, we already know what makes us upset or what triggers us. So we just know it's going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it. But there is something we can do about it. We can break apart the pattern and start to break it up. It's called a pattern interrupt. When you start to break this pattern up with these little changes, then the steps of the pattern eventually scatter. And when all the steps scatter, you may forget to have an emotional trigger sometime very soon. What I mean is, in my example, when I go to the restaurant on Tuesday night and I see my girlfriend order a drink and that emotional trigger comes up, I'm going to throw in those words, I am not a child anymore, I am an adult. But I'm going to say it in a way that I really mean it. I'm not going to say like, well, I'm not a child. I'm going to say, I'm not a child anymore. I'm an adult. I'm going to say it like I really mean it and I really need to hear it. This may not be your words. You may say something like, what I'm doing right now makes no sense. You may say something like that. You could say a number of things. You could put a picture of a lake or a stream in your pattern. You can do anything you want in your pattern. 
okay, this is the point where I get upset. I'm going to picture a lake in that moment. And you might think, well, how is that going to keep me from being upset? It's not about keeping you from doing anything. It's about breaking up the pattern. Because a pattern typically follows the same steps every time. It's like if I asked you about a traumatic event that happened in your past, you're probably going to tell the story the same way every time. It may change here and there as you remember certain things, but you'll probably never tell it from a third-person perspective. What? That's weird, but I was involved. I was doing it. But if I said, hey, Paul was over there seeing his girlfriend order a drink, then I've introduced a new element to the pattern that wasn't there before. So pattern interrupts can be very helpful in breaking apart unconscious responses or reactions that you'd normally have and future pacing how you're going to respond and injecting some sort of change in the pattern changes the pattern. And if the pattern's changed, it's not going to have the same impact on you, not only the next time, but every future time this happens. So this is another way to start dealing with any old emotional triggers or your reactive nature, if you have one, and start seeing yourself in situations that you'd normally have an unwanted reaction to and changing the patterns in little ways, not only doing everything I already talked about, but especially future pacing and injecting something new into the pattern and be creative because the more creative you are, the more it'll stand out. So when you do this, you may find your reactions changing. And in fact, you may not react anymore. You may actually have a choice to not react or react. You could do it either way. It's when choice is finally an option that allows you to start breaking this up faster and faster to the point where it's no longer a controller in your life. It's no longer dictating how you live your life. Just like my emotional trigger about uh, people drinking, I could finally make a choice to react or not. And that is the most empowering. That is such a liberating feeling that you'll want more and more of it because when you have the option to choose, you no longer feel like you're cornered. You no longer feel like you're out of control. You feel like you can live your life the way you want to. And you may make the choice to be upset. You may make the choice to be reactive, but it's a choice. And I think that's the most important part of this. I want to thank you for joining me. I hope this has been helpful, not only to the person who wrote, but to you if this applies anywhere in your life. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for tuning in. When we come back, I'll say my thank yous and goodbyes and my final words right after this. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. I want to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. Head over to BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash brain and get 10% off professional counseling services that you don't even have to leave your home to use. Check them out today. I also want to thank our patrons of the week, the financial backers of this show. Always grateful to mention their names. Kathleen, uh, Lisa, really good to see you, Lisa. I have known her for years. Christy, Monica, you are brand new, Monica. Thank you so much. I am so glad that you joined. 
Thank you for your support. And Victoria and Tracy, good to see all your names here. So glad to see new support as well. I have also received several donations recently that I would like to thank personally. Christine, I am grateful for your generous donation. Thank you. And Susie, I, I just read your email, I think. Is this the same Susie? If it is, thank you for your donation. You certainly didn't have to donate and to get your question answered. That's not how this works. <laughs> but I am grateful for your donation. And of course, Sandra, very generous, Sandra. I am surprised. I am humbled. I am grateful for anyone that supports the show. And I do take the time. I know some people are like, when's this segment over? But I, I do take the time to thank these people. Thank you personally, because the financial part is what's needed. So that's what I do. I never ask for it. It just happens. And if it happens, I am grateful. Thank you again. If you find value in this show, you can do the same over at moretob.com. I appreciate anyone that goes there and does that. There's options to join the monthly patron program or just give a one-time donation. Totally up to you. And if you join the patron program, you get all kinds of private episodes and worksheets and workbooks and the video archive over there. So I like to give back even more if you're in the patron program. Everyone in the program, I am grateful for. And of course, anyone that shares the show, leaves a review, all of that is absolutely welcome. And I am super appreciative. Thank you all. And I want to mention Love and Abuse. I mentioned that earlier in the episode. Love and Abuse is my other podcast. If you are looking for a show that deals with difficult relationships and how to communicate with people in a, in a way that is more productive, especially the people that are controlling and manipulative or emotionally abusive, go to loveandabuse.com. Listen to that podcast. You'll get a lot from it. I get a lot of feedback on that show, and I do talk about... Uh, some of the deeper, sometimes darker parts of the difficulties in certain relationships, whether it's romantic, platonic, or family. If you're in any type of relationship where you're dealing with a difficult person, that show will help you through it. So check it out over at loveandabuse.com. And finally, I'd like to thank Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in the overwhelmed brain. And let me share with you one more question you can ask yourself if you feel that you are a reactive person or you're carrying around emotional triggers. This question will reveal to you maybe something that you don't think enough about regarding your triggers. And hear me out because it's going to sound very obvious at first and you're going to have an immediate answer probably. But think about something that triggers you, something that you react to maybe in a negative way that uh, you wish you probably could react differently. Just get that in your mind right now. And when it's in your mind, I want you to ask this question. What will happen if what I fear comes true? Again, that might be a really obvious answer, but I really want you to think about this. I, I want you to get into this state of mind and ask yourself, what will happen if what I fear comes true? The reason I ask that is because I had to ask myself this question about the alcohol and stuff. So I would ask myself, what would happen if my girlfriend drank and she wanted to continue drinking? It's a little rephrasing of the question, but it pretty much goes in that direction. Like, what would happen if what I fear came true and it was always going to be that way. That actually might be a better way to ask that question. What will happen 
if what I fear comes true, and it will always be that way. So that's pretty much what I asked myself. What will happen if my girlfriend drank and she always drank? What will happen then? See, what I predict is that most of us don't ever travel down the road of what would happen next, what would happen next, what would happen next. In other words, I would think uh, my girlfriend drank, so I would get upset. I don't want her to drink, but she drank anyway, and every night she was drinking. What would happen next? What would be my next step? What will happen to me? What will I do then? I think it's important to think about all the possible scenarios that could unfold or will unfold when you force yourself into that position. Because when I was younger and I was affected by people drinking around me, I was so blinded by anything beyond me not wanting them to drink that I never thought beyond that wall that I put up. The wall was, I just don't want them to drink. That was my wall. When I explored it a little bit more, my wall got a little further back. I don't want them to drink because it's dangerous to me. I don't want them to drink because they won't love me. And that wall gets pushed further and further back. But it still never went far enough, meaning there was more I could discover. I could continue digging deeper, figuring out what would actually happen if the people I love continued to drink, what would happen to me? What would I think? What would I do next? The answer might be, I don't know what I would do next. I don't know. I would, I would go crazy. I would pull my hair out. I would get angry. I, I don't know. I would yell. I would scream. What would I do next? I don't know. And that's where sometimes we end up, is we end up in an I don't know pattern. It's the I don't know that is that wall. That wall is built of, I don't know what I'd do next. And I want you to get past that wall. I want you to climb over it. I want you to know what you'd do next. I really want you to explore that because typically what causes us to not heal from certain triggers in our life is not exploring what's beyond the I don't know wall. If you don't go past that wall, if you don't climb over it or dig under it or somehow get beyond it and understand what you would do, you may not be able to release the trigger. This is going to be different for everyone. For me, it was like, well, if my girlfriend keeps drinking and keeps drinking, I might have to cry in a corner by myself. I might have to leave the relationship. I mean, I started admitting some things that were very um, scary for me to admit to myself. I started thinking along the lines of what I would do, what I would think, and where would I go next, and what would happen after that. I just kept going through all these steps. I mean, this is sort of like future pacing, like I was talking about earlier. What would happen next? What would I do next? What would I think next? When you get past the I don't know wall, you start to loosen the grip the emotional trigger has on you. Because we're usually stuck at that wall. We're usually stuck at the I just don't want it to happen, wall. <laughs> and when, when you're stuck there, you have no clue how to stop it. You have no idea what you do. And because you don't know what you do, you just don't want it to happen. So this is where I'm sending you next. If you are having a challenge dealing with any type of emotional trigger or you feel very reactive, 
you kind of go through the worst case scenario. What would happen if that really happened and it never changed? What would happen if that were absolutely true and there was nothing you could do about it? What would you do next? What would you think? What would be your next step? And when those steps start revealing themselves to you and you get past the I don't know wall, you'll probably have some sort of revelation of sorts. And all I mean by that is that when you discover something new, a thought that you hadn't had before, you could freak out a little bit, but you could also realize that your fear is based on something that maybe isn't valid anymore, or if it is valid, that it prompts you to do something else with your life or make different choices now. But if you never get past the I don't know wall, you never give yourself another choice. Your only choice is to react. And if your reactions aren't serving you in some way, then you're probably better off exploring what does give you more choices. I hope this helps. This was a probably a deeper than normal episode. I'm so glad you stayed till the end, though, because I want to remind you to keep your mind open because this is what helps you step into your power and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Amazing.